This is RAF with Tony Tone and LA. Yo, what's up? It's your boy LA, aka the Love Ambassador, returning to you once again for another issue of <laughs> RAF. So we're all up in the studio and shit's getting a little bit crazy. Yo, I know it's been a little bit of a minute. Sorry, you know, uh, special shout out to Brucey for covering, um, you know, a very, very interesting thing and uh, making us feel a little bit better about, uh, you know, if you're along with Valentine's Day. But we're going to look, the history nerd of me is going to step it up a little bit. You know what I mean? Because we all been watching America and the State of Union address and it looks like you know, that the country is just getting more and more divided. And many people are, are questioning um, when people say, you know, make America great again. Is that racial? Is that economic? Is that political? And what we're seeing across the Western world is people really starting to vote for far-right parties again. Now, we can only hope that it's not going to be a repeat of uh, World War One, or in particular World War Two, which was caused by a dire economic circumstances in Germany. So I thought, to be honest with you, today at work was pretty quiet, so I was just reading the newspaper, and uh, one of the articles that, that came up kind of caught my attention, and I'm going to run through it today. Um, and it's called uh, the low-income nations that were once super wealthy. And the reason why I think it's very interesting is because we're so entwined in Western power and Western dominance because it's been round and the main, you know, ruler, so to speak, for the last hundred years. And now we're seeing countries like China come up as economic powerhouses. Previously, we saw the Tiger countries of Asia, uh, Japan, you know, making their mark on the world as well through economics and finance and everything else. So what I'm trying to say is that it's very much like, it's like a rotation sort of thing. Like everyone has their time in the spotlight from, you know, Genghis Khan and the Mongols to the Aztecs. So here's a little bit of a history. And I guess feel the thought that you know, dude, if you do want to remain in power, <laughs> have a think about what you're doing. And uh, for those trying to get in power, yeah, realize that, you know, your, your time might be sooner rather than later. So, uh, well, as they say, let us begin. I want to start off in Thailand. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Thailand is a country within Southeast Asia. Uh, and Thailand's GDP per capita is around $6,000, which is below the global average, but it's not the poorest of the world. Uh, I've had the benefit of traveling through Thailand. So the capital is Bangkok. <laughs> yes, it's, it actually is. That's the name, Bangkok. Anyway, we'll leave that for the moment. Uh, and I've traveled up to Chiang Mai, which is right up in the northern parts, uh, and traveled through Phuket, which is one of the islands, and through the islands as well. Uh, now, they have a very, very rich history. Uh, they still have a king, still have a royal family. And during the 16th and 17th century, excuse my pronunciation, the Ayathaya Kingdom covered much of what is modern-day Thailand. 
and the kingdom was the centre for international trade and the capital rivaled Paris in size and splendour. And you do see that actually when you go to Thailand, you see like when you go to the royal, um, you know, the royal palaces and the Buddhas and everything like that, you could tell that, you know, at least in periods of history, it had extreme wealth. Unlike other countries in the region, the Ayutthaya kingdom welcomed foreign traders open arms, exchanging goods with merchants from China, Japan, and as well as nations as far as France and Portugal. The boom times didn't last, and trade declined in the early century, hitting the economy hard. And then what also happens, and again this reflects in modern society back to history, once the economy goes, you see um, the fight for power come out. And then it's no, nothing different in Thailand. There was a bloody Game of Thrones which saw several potential heirs bumped off, i.e. killed. <laughs> Monarchies destabilised. And then so his neighbours in Burma sitting next door like, oh, fair enough, let's just give this a crack. <laughs> so in 1765, they seized the capital for two years and eventually destroyed it. And what was left is what we now know as pretty much modern Thailand, uh, the Thumburi Kingdom. Next, uh, we're going to go to Mali. Now, Mali, for me, has always been of interest because of the Griot culture there. Now, Griot culture was basically they had travelling musicians who recounted stories and news and what was going on in between city to city and village to village. And there's many people that feel, uh, and this is close to my heart because I love blues music, that the blues musicians... Uh, or carrying on musical tradition from the Griot culture in West Africa where a lot of the slaves were sort of drawn from. Now, Mali today is one of the poorest countries in the world where the GDP per capita is $837 a year. <laughs> that's, just, that's like insane. Uh, and most of it is subsistence farming. But if you rewind a few hundred years ago, uh, the Mali Empire was a total space of about 1.1 million square kilometres. At its height, Mansa Musa number 1, who reigned from 1312 to 1337, is probably still considered to this day by historians of all walks of life, one of the richest people that ever lived. Now, this is saying that it's $415 billion was his equivalent of modern-day money that he earned in 25 years of rule. I've heard that it's actually gone even up to somewhere within a trillion. So the point is that Jude had a lot of money. In fact, he had so much money that when he was going on the pilgrimage to Mecca, that when he went into Egypt, because Mali was so rich with the gold, right, and it had one time half the world's supply of the precious metal that the Egyptian economy actually failed for years afterwards because he basically put gold, gave so much gold to everyone that it altered, it basically kicked up inflation and altered the economy. Such was the wealth of the guy. And then the jewel in the crown was Timbuktu. Now, you might have seen Timbuktu in the news today with some, you know, problems within that country with sort of uh, terrorism insurgencies and the French fighting there and the Malian army fighting there. But culturally, it's enormously rich area from, uh, you know, universities to beautiful buildings of mosques and uh, art and literature and everything like that. 
uh, it's now sort of a former itself, but, you know, again, it goes to show you how uh, different nations and cultures and whatever take over from ones that were previously enormously rich. The next is Turkey, um, which has an average GDP of about $11,000. Uh, now, they were actually part of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and back in the 16th century, the Ottoman Empire emerged, uh, which was previously, Tur well, it's Turkey now, boasted a GDP which was two-thirds that of Western Europe. Now, they ruled for huge amounts of inter-Serbia, closest to the Yugoslavia area, that's why Bosnia and Herzegovina, for example, you have the Muslims there, uh, North Africa, uh, Israel, uh, the Middle East, um, and so, yeah, I've actually been there, and Suleiman, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent, who ruled from 1520 to 1566, presided over a golden age of military prowess and unprecedented prosperity and great artistic achievements. Now, I've been uh, to Istanbul, to the, the palace, <laughs> and the jewels there, because I've been to see the Queen Elizabeth's jewels as well, is out of this world. Like the wealth that the Ottoman Empire had was was insane. Um, they kept expanding until basically what happened was uh, they sided with Germany in World War One. Australians know the you know the Ottoman Empire for Gallipoli and us trying to run up beachheads to attack them uh, and the. You know, the, the battles in the Middle East, uh, Besheba as well, with the cavalry charges and everything like that is entrenched with Australian history. And basically, the Ottoman Empire collapsed after World War One, with the countries getting their independence, you know, or becoming under jurisdictions of foreign powers. Uh, and by 1922, the Republic of Turkey was actually born. India now has a GDP per capita of $7,000, uh, and hundreds of millions still live within poverty. It wasn't always the case. The Mughal Empire was founded in 1526, extended over the whole entire continent, and was basically <laughs> rolling in cash. Uh, they bypassed trying to become the world's foremost economic power, and at one stage in the 18th century were counting for just under 25% of global GDP, which could translate to a staggering $21 trillion today. <laughs> So when you see poor India, like I said, it wasn't always the case. Um, and what basically happened, they were sort of, you know, in manufacturing and industry and their living standards were even higher than England uh, for a lot of the 18th century. But basically by 1858, the Brits had taken over uh, through essentially military power. And that's where, well, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of, you know, colonial Britain imposing on India uh, to full and devastating effect occurred. Uh, Latvia, <laughs> you know, so Latvia had a liberal constitution adopted in 1922, and basically before World War II, they were immensely prosperous of agriculture and, and timber exports. Uh, what essentially happened was that by the Germans attacking in World War II uh, and then the Soviets taking over, uh, the whole entire economy was basically devastated uh, and they got independence after 1990 and it's only now that they've started to recover but nowhere near um, 
nowhere near what they once once achieved. But having said that, the $14,000 GDP, and they've been making leaps and bounds. Cuba is another interesting one that I've been to. Uh, so when I finished school in end of 2003, start 2004 was my 18th birthday. And my dad said, look, I mean, you studied super hard. Um, super proud of you. You've done real well. You got good results. Uh, family takes a holiday once a year. Um, you know, we saved up some money. So what we're going to do is we're going to let you choose anywhere in the world that you want to go. Uh, so at the time I was uh, learning jazz piano uh, of uh, Frank Zappa's pianist uh, at the time. And then I was also doing a lot of uh, Buena Vista Social Club and Latin music, uh, playing in bands and that sort of stuff. To be honest, just, just picking up girls doing salsa, dance, <laughs> doing salsa dancing. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go to Cuba. Uh, at the time, the restrictions were in full force by the Americans after the Cuban Missile Crisis, so we had to go to Los Angeles, into Mexico, Mexico flying to Cuba. And the crazy thing about flying to Cuba at the time was you had military jets, like, fly right up to the aeroplane and escort you into Cuba. And then when you went into the airport, they shut these wooden doors and you stand one-on-one -on -one with this, like, beefy dude, <laughs> you know, asking where you're from. But it was an amazing experience. Like, I ended up playing it with street bands, went to a voodoo church, uh, did salsa dancing in the streets, um, traveled around, had an amazing experience. And the one thing that happened for them is because of the restrictions, they couldn't sell as much of the sugar, which was their main export, and also that basically the GDP collapsed. So before the... Before the Fidel Castro took charge in 1959. They had one of the highest GDP per capita in the Americas and the second highest per capita of ownership of cars and telephones, which now is not a big thing, but in 1959 without mobiles and everything would have been. Um, and then after the, the revolution took place and obviously after the Cuban Missile Crisis, it kind of fell off and got particularly hit because I was backed by the Soviet Union uh, after that ended. So whilst when you go there, there's all these beautiful old houses and may they recover after the last hurricane they had, the people there are clearly, in terms of dollar value poor, but there was a big, uh, they reduced the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And also the healthcare uh, and education system are highly regarded as some of the best in the world. So of course, you know, Politics aside, you know, maths and English and Spanish and history and science and whatever, they've got really good education universities. And they also produce an enormous amount of doctors to the point that they export uh, doctors literally around the world as part of the foreign policy. So, you know, we'll give you a thousand doctors to work in your country and help your poor if you give us oil free, like was the case back in the day of Venezuela. Uh, Iraq was another one. Uh, so pre-1973, during the 60s and 70s, they were absolutely booming. Highly developed nation. Uh, had one of the highest living standards in the region. Um, GDP skyrocketed, infrastructure, social services. Then Saddam Hussein took over. Uh, and, of course, we know from sort of the Iraq War of, uh, you know, 19, 1990, but before that was 1980 to 1988, uh, we fought Iran, uh, which basically ruined the whole entire economy. Obviously, 2003 to up to today, they had obviously the other Iraq war, um, 
So now the GDP is only around sort of about $5,000 a day, even though it's really an immensely oil-rich country. Uh, Zimbabwe, shout out to my brothers and sisters there. Same thing. I mean, we've gone through it before with sort of the hyperinflation. During the 1980s, it had a robust economy, basically because of its abundant resources in agriculture. Cracks began to show around sort of the late 90s. Early 2000, well, we all know about the reappropriation of land, which interesting for me when I went there, I was actually, as a white dude, surprised how many white people still own farms there because uh, I was literally traveling through the countryside. So I think that, you know, the media also sort of did uh, bump it up a little bit of what actually what actually went down. Um, and as today, as we know, it's a, it's 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 struggling, it's hurting, and we sh we wish our brothers and sisters well. Um, it's the third biggest country of our podcast listening in between Australia and, believe it or not, the Americas, uh, United States. And uh, Nauru was another one. Uh, we actually did the phosphate rock out of there, which is fertilizer. They're basically this tunnel island of seven thousand people that made so much money off this fertilizer business. They made billions, so they had all the homes. I haven't heard they had supercars and they drive like a Lamborghini around the island. Then, you know, when it ran out of petrol, they'd just buy a new one. Um, they put a billion dollars into a trust fund. They owned a lot of property in uh, Australia and other places. But due to the, you know, the corruption and basically mismanagement, um, they lost a lot of it. And now, well, for Australians, it's uh, they have a detention camp there. Uh, similar to what's causing controversy in America at the moment. And that detention camp for illegal refugees is actually the main income earner for Nauru these days. Um, Venezuela is the last one, which is in the news at the moment. Uh, it used to be one of the Latin America's most healthy economies. Um, it was since 2013, dropped 35%, and GDP has shrunk by 40%. Millions of people have left. Uh, now there's a bit of a power play between the Americans and the Russians of who's going to take over who. Uh, and it's safe to say that the socialist revolution they were trying didn't work at all. So, yeah, that's a, that's a few countries for you um, that we went through. And I guess just in closing, and uh, thanks for joining me on this journey, is that what I'm trying to say is that so often we get caught up in our own wealth, and importance, those that live in Western developed countries. And now as, you know, a, a young man in his early 30s earning good money, uh, you realize that since the global financial crisis in around 2008, and I might do a podcast and that made make it a little bit more exciting than being too dry, the biggest challenge has been that basically the governments around the world and the economies have printed money. So whilst we think that we're booming, we're actually living on borrowed time and borrowed credit. So the reason why I thought it was important to do this podcast is kind of a reminder, like, A, when you meet people from India or Venezuela or Mali, like, don't judge them for being poor. I mean, also acknowledge that they were once probably richer than your, you know, great-grandparents, for example. Um you know, they came from wealth and they came from culture and they came from knowledge, you know, Thailand for that matter, you know. Like, of course, you have your fun in your ping-pong shows, but also show respect for the other cultures as well. And maybe ask yourself in your own life, like, you know, where's where, where am I heading? Where's my culture heading? Where's my country heading? How can we be prosperous and how can we learn from the mistakes of the past? 
Uh, well, thank you very much for listening. This is your boy LA, aka the Love Ambassador, coming to you straight live and direct from the Jungle Studios. Ah, uh, one, peace.